Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we do so from an authentically Catholic perspective. And we're going to do so today with a repeat and popular guest, Dr. Kevin Majors. We're going to continue down the pathway of practical ways to address the 20% of the population who struggles in a significant way with anxiety. Today, we're going to do that through the topic of prayer. Now, Tom, we should say right now to our listeners, we're not saying the answer to anxiety is prayer. It's much more than that. So oh, yes. Keep listening. Oh, yes. This is good stuff. And uh, we received an email from Celine in Alabama. She said she's so glad that she found the anxiety episodes because they were extremely helpful to her. And she intends to listen to further interviews with Dr. Majors multiple times in order to take some action in combating anxiety. And finally, she uh, actually talks about something that we'll be getting to in this episode with Kevin. And that is she discovered in the late 80s and early 90s, a cassette tape called The Grace of the Present Moment. And she said this was instrumental in helping her back to sanity 20 to 30 years ago. Well, I had to pause for just a minute. I hope our listeners remember what cassette tapes are. It's, <laughs> it's possible that they don't, but they, they used to be a thing, you young millennial listeners. Yes. I remember when those were new. Heck, I had an eight track player when I was in junior high. And if you don't know what it is, you can Google it, whatever so that is. We've got a lot of information that we can use to soften up the beachhead of our listeners on anxiety, don't we? Yes, we can. Each year, about 40 million adult Americans struggle with anxiety. And of these 40%, only a little over a third receive treatment. Even though it's highly treatable. Exactly. Women, a little bit more than men. Well, actually, maybe a lot more than men. About 23% uh, versus 14%. And adolescents, one-third of adolescents, that is sometime between the age of 13 and 18, struggle with, an, in, with anxiety in a way that disrupts the normal flow of their lives. And that's amazing. A third of adolescents, if you just pause and think about how many kids that is, that they're struggling, and sadly, many of them unrecognized. And- you know, as Kevin has taught us, anxiety is an emotion that we can't control. It's going to come on in everybody. But we're saying that in about 20% of people uh, per year, 20% of adults per year, it becomes a problem that blocks them from living their life normally in some area. Now, while we can't control anxiety, we've talked on previous episodes, various treatments can help us to control the worry, the dread, and the ruminations that are responses to anxiety that cause suffering in us. That we can control. And you know, tonight when we talk about prayer, last night I was reading this wonderful little book I got at Christmas because some Catholics I respected recommended it online. It was written in 1950 by Dom Eugene Boylan, a Benedictine monk in Ireland called Difficulties in Mental Prayer. And it's a little book with like four and five page chapters. And it's just full of incredible wisdom. Well, last night he had these, these two quotes. He said, uh, here's one of them. He says, for if prayer be essentially an awareness of God, all that makes us unwilling to be aware of him is an obstacle to prayer. And so in talking to Kevin offline, uh, one of the main things we're going to talk about is the importance of awareness and what Catholics have referred to as the sacrament of the present moment. And then a few pages later, and this will be page 84, he says that when we're praying, prayer is no longer a matter of some few minutes spent on our knees struggling to find something to say. It becomes a more or less continual awareness of Jesus living in us. So 
I think you're going to love the way that Dr. Majors takes this concept of awareness in prayer and brings it into how it can help us if we struggle with anxiety. It's really St. Paul's pray without ceasing, isn't it? Yes. It's kind of another answer to that, that riddle that, you know, I'm only starting to understand here in my 50s of how can we pray continually? Because if, if everything is prayer, then nothing is prayer. You, you know, if all oh, my work is my prayer, my walking is my, well, how is that true? And how is it untrue? Because you can't say that everybody is praying all the time, but that's our goal. So we're going to talk a lot about the responses and how do we accept the anxiety as something that's good and natural, and in some cases, protective, and how do we turn that into something positive? Right. So Kevin has this analogy. If you haven't heard his previous episodes, I recommend highly that you do so. But he talks about anxiety being a high adrenaline state, but it's a high adrenaline state that we often label as negative. Yeah, we're supposed to be anxious. If there's a bear behind you, you should be anxious. That's a natural protective mechanism that may save your life. Um, But we need to learn how to use that in a positive. So that adrenaline is there is a superpower. And probably the worst thing that we have learned that we can say when we have anxiety is calm down. Just relax. (laughs) Because you can't. No, the adrenaline's there, as Kevin says, as a superpower. And so he talks about taking this negative high adrenaline state and turning it into a positive high adrenaline state, which is called flow, a time when you are in complete command of yourself, of your work, and what you are doing. And so we can take this high adrenaline and use it to love. Uh, What is the loving thing I can do here? So he says, recognize the anxiety as a challenge to grow. Secondly, be aware of your surroundings. And he's going to talk about uh, awareness today. And then third, lean into the, the pain of the anxiety to do a loving act. And that's one way we can take our adrenaline and turn it into a positive superpower. So some common sense things he recommended in previous episodes, sleep seven to eight hours a night, exercise regularly. In fact, one thing that he did that I've now got my young sons doing three days a week is at least 10 minutes on the treadmill where three 30 second episodes are sprints as fast as you can go because this increases a chemical called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And it makes the nerves in your brain connect to so many other nerve cells and you can think more clearly and be more creative. And if you want to bet if I did that just before I came to tape the show today, you're absolutely right. I do it before every show so I'm thinking a little more clearly. You know, I wish I could think of a total of the number of guests that we've had as experts. And at the end of the show, there was some combination of sleep more, exercise more, (laughs) and eat less uh, as the secret to a lot of problems. It's amazing how the simple things are true. Oh, and this is a, a beautiful thing Kevin has taught us is that when you're suffering from responding to anxiety, the only time you can grow is in the moment when you're feeling the anxiety. And that's why the next show that we record with Kevin is going to talk about some of this very specific things in acceptance and commitment therapy we can do in the moment. But he's taught us some things to do in the moment already, such as uh, a special kind of breathing, where we breathe and take in a very deep breath for four seconds, hold it for a few seconds, then exhale it for another four seconds. And he said this kind of activates a nerve called the vagus nerve, which is a parasympathetic nerve. So it helps to calm down the sympathetic nerves that are activated by adrenaline. 
And, and then the, you know, reframing, just thinking this anxiety is here to help me do good, not to make me do bad. So Kevin does not use very much, if any, uh, medications in most of his anxiety patients because he's able to uh, find a way to help most of them. But realize that what you're learning on the show is not a substitute for seeing a psychiatric or psychologic professional, but it may help many of us to reduce our struggles with anxiety. So before we go to our break, let's pose the medical trivia question of the day. Oh, and this is a good one. Well, they're all good ones. This is a particularly good one. The skin is the largest organ of the body, and it weighs how much? About 22 pounds. That's like 10 kilograms. For a dermatologist, that's big. That's big. Uh, the liver and the brain are the two largest internal organs of the body. So the question is, what is the relationship of their size? And it's a multiple choice. <laughs> Does the liver weigh about twice as much as the brain? Does the liver weigh about 50% more than the brain? third option, are the liver and the brain within about 10% of each other in weight, or does the brain weigh about 50% more than the liver, or does the brain weigh about twice as much as the liver? You may have, you know, internal ideas of how big these two organs are. Well, we're going to try to put a number on it in the last segment of the show, but until then, you'll have Dr. Kevin Majors with us here on Dr. Doctor after the break. We are now back with our special guest tonight, Dr. Kevin Majors. Tonight, the topic, Anxiety and Prayer. To regular listeners, he will be well-known, born and raised in Minnesota, trained at Dallas, uh, Univers University of Dallas, undergrad, UT Southwestern Medical School, the Beck Institute of Cognitive Therapy. Now he's on faculty for the last decade at Harvard Medical School, where he teaches cognitive behavioral therapy to psychiatrists in training. Kevin Majors, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks, Tom. Great to be back. Hey, I have been learning so much about dealing with my own anxiety through this. And one of the things I learned is that it's important not only to be externally silent, but internally silent. And it seems that some of the pain with anxiety is not due to the anxiety itself. It's due to the response, which is usually some unhelpful form of thinking. But besides thinking, there's something else that the mind can do, too, isn't there? Simply being observant. Exactly. What yeah, so it's very natural that when we have pain or we have something we're dreading, that part of our mind is going to want to turn to problem solving. And so it gets into this churning and so worrying and or ruminating or obsessing. And we just repeatedly are trying to solve some problem by thinking it through. And what we don't see is that that really is being impatient with the problem, being unwilling to suffer it unwilling to suffer. And, and one thing that you've said in the past is that if there is suffering with anxiety, it means there's some idol in our life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So there's some origin of the unwillingness to suffer this. And what we need instead is the willingness to suffer it. And that means really two things. It means really the virtue of patience. But patience has two parts, like a Form and a matter, formal part and the material part. The formal part is the judgment of the trial that we're dreading. And the material part of it is feeling the sensation of the anxiety. And so that's the form and matter. What we need to do is see whatever we're dreading, to see it in, to reframe it really as an opportunity to embrace the will of God, to see it as God's providence lifting us and coming at us. Uh, 
So we can see this is actually a very good thing. And then when it comes to the discomfort of the anxiety, to open up and feel it fully, which is particularly being aware of it in the front of our chest, the center of our chest. Okay, and that's where the tightness is. Right. So when we get anxious, we get, you know, tight in our chest. You've talked to us about, you know, deep breathing, feeling the anxiety there, and somehow Mm -hmm. it affects the vagus nerve. How does that all work? The sensations come of anxiety are put there in a way by your threat detector, the amygdala. And it it puts it there as, as as a signal that it wants to make sure that you got the signal. It's the same with cravings, actually. A craving is similarly a gnawing sensation in our chest that our amygdala wants us to know that there's, instead of pain, there's awaiting pleasure. And so, and so there's a sense that our maple is not trying to get us to do anything. It doesn't want us to, you know, run from the thing. It just wants us to know. So if you open up and feel the sensation fully, that goes right back through your vagus nerve to give a message received signal directly back to the amygdala saying message received. And then your amygdala will learn from your response. See, your amygdala doesn't even know to learn from you. Like it might be that, you, you know, the person afraid of heights goes on the balcony and they get scared. Well, their amygdala will only learn from this experience that the balconies are safe if it knows the person felt the anxiety. Hmm. And then it says, okay, he or she, you know, they got the message. Oh. And, now, and now I can learn from them. So for your own threat system to be willing to learn from the way you act, you have to open up and feel the sensations it's giving you because that goes back to the vagus nerve to let it, your amygdala know that the message was received. Everything uh, always relates to childbirth in my mind. Um, <laughs> okay. But, but, He's but, an ob uh, <laughs> It is fascinating to watch women who do natural labor well, yeah. really well. Yeah. They lean into the pain and they sort of accept it. And it, it, I couldn't help but think about that when you were referencing, you've got to acknowledge it, that it's there. Yep. And not shy away, not be afraid of it. But the women who do have the best labor experiences, they usually have very little of any fear uh, because they're they're accepting that pain. And then, you know, for generations, deep breathing has been a big part of sort of relaxing and accepting and childbirth. Um, Mm -hmm. But but it's remarkable hearing you describe it in those terms. Yeah, no, I think so. It's true. Very, And so there's a beautiful physiology of it. And there's also a very beautiful spirituality Mm. to it. Because, you know, when you, when you think of, for instance, you know, what does our Lord, you know, when you look at him and his passion? Yes. Which, you think, and that's the next yeah. question I wanted to ask, because you've been going through the three steps of turning anxiety into flow. What is it? The, the, the reframing, the acknowledging uh, the presence. Awareness. Awareness. Yeah. And then leaning into it or, or, or doing something loving. Yeah. Or taking on the challenge. So could you please take Jesus egging the garden as an example and show how Jesus went through those three steps? Exactly. So that's a great question. So, and it's true for the agony, it's true in his whole passion. You think, what was his intention there? Because reframing, you know, is to see the opportunity for love. And so that therefore you're forming this intention, you know, for the greatest love that you could bring to a challenge. Now, we can easily see our Lord in his passion, seeing this as an opportunity to glorify his Father and make atonement and you know, win the salvation of, of souls. Mm. So he completely saw the opportunity before him so that he could actually say, bring it on, which was what he did when he said, thy will be done. 
So he's he's saying bring it on, and he was he was so, and that's the formal part of patience where you're judging the trial to be very good because you mm. see the opportunity in it. And then you also have to see was in his passion was he willing to feel the pain, or was he trying to somehow distract himself from it? Mm-hmm. Well, of course not. He was totally open to feeling his agony in the garden, to feeling the pain in his heart, which he speaks of, uh, that his soul was sorrowful even to death. But And on the cross, he was fully feeling the pain of the nails. Through all his passion, he wasn't shying away from that feeling in the slightest. It's not a Rambo bring it. Uh, I'm not afraid of anything. It's yeah. it's acknowledging that and turning it into something positive and an opportunity. It, but but taking it yeah. face on for what it is, it's it's pain. His agony was was horrifically painful. It's absolutely, yeah. And and then in his heart, it became it, it was all part of the fire of love, mm. and that's what we see in this this fire of charity, which is what he was leading into, with absolute generosity leading into it. And, and so, and, and mm-hmm. how does that fit in with when the angel came to comfort him? What state was he in there of these three steps of turning anxiety, a negative high adrenaline state into flow, a positive high adrenaline state? Yeah, it seems that, that that's, I think there's a, there's a, there's a mystery there because I don't think that he needed uh, an angel to help him manage the emotions of the moment. Uh, I think that there's something much more mystical going on for our instruction Mm. that we too, who are like him, are strengthened by the angels as we're, you know, in our own task, you know, of embracing the passion. So the reframing, like you said, was when he said, your will be done, not my will to to the father. And technically, I don't even know if he would say it's reframing because I don't think he had a bad frame. (laughs) Good point. Good point. But he was just seconding that and showing us how to do it. Mm. That you have to see that this trial, this thing that you're anxious about, that there is a there's a divine, it has a divine content because it comes from his providence. If this thing is going to happen, it will be his providence happening. And there's something to love and embrace. Would it be correct to say that what Jesus was experiencing at that moment was anxiety? Yes. Uh, I, in, in the sense that there is this one, this great impending evil. Yes. You know, and so there's a natural human reaction there of, yes. of, of fear. But at the same time, it was not just a fear for himself. But I think that in the agony, it was actually just the reality of all the sins he was taking on. You know, and so to see those, the reality of those things so clearly, I think that was what produced the horror and fear. And I think this is good for us human beings to realize he can truly relate to us when we go through that. Yeah, absolutely. That he is the model of, of patience and how to turn the very pain into a triumph of love. And he was doing it all during a deep episode of prayer. So, Kevin, very simply, what is prayer? So I think the, you know, it's the, the Catechism, I think, puts it best when it, when it talks about prayer being a raising of our mind and heart to God or asking good things from Him. But this idea that, that when that prayer is a kind of, um, it's, it's, it's how we are actually united to God in our mind and heart. So something that Pope Benedict taught us 
which has been around for centuries in the church, is called Divine Reading or Lexio Divina. And it talks about how we can profitably use spiritual writing, especially the Gospels or anything else in Scripture, to go through five steps. And the five, the you know, the first step is reading it. The second step is meditation, where you think it over. The third step is actually what is called prayer itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And the the fourth is contemplation, and the fifth is in taking action. So it sounds like there's at least three different things that might be construed as prayer in here between the the meditation, the prayer, and the contemplation. How does this fit in for our listeners? I think that we've always, and this this goes back to St. Benedict, but it's been the, the pattern, I think, specifically, how do you bring Scripture to your prayer? So, and Dave Arabman recommended Lectio Divina, you know, from Second Second Council. Uh, St. John of the Cross has the same kind of basic structure. I think it's better not to get necessarily too caught up in the stages because different methods, different things will have different stages. But the first thing is that reading, the purpose of reading is to get something that you can kind of chew on in meditation. And meditation it's still not really, it's not yet prayer fully. And that's what Boylan says in the book, Difficulties in Mental Prayer. Correct. He says, you know, meditation is not yet prayer. It's thinking about uh, holy things or holy realities. Exactly. And and I think if you go deep into the tradition of prayer, you'll see that the goal of meditation is in a way a sincerity of life so that you're able to sincerely be desiring God above everything else. And so meditation is where you break bad habits. You you like oh yeah that I sh-, you know when I say those things to my you know family I have to stop. It's like there's a purification that takes place in meditation that prepares the person for prayer. And so you know in meditation you you kind of you're meditating on the humanity and divinity of our Lord above all. Yes. And through the words of Scripture, and then you're comparing it to your life. But more and more, the figure of our Lord becomes more captivating. And there's a simplifying that takes place where now the heart is strongly desiring God. And desiring God is the purpose of reframing. Ah, you know, it, yes. it, yeah, it's the correcting of all fear. Reframing is about your intention. What are you seeking? And so ultimately, reframing is about seeking God in everything. Mm. And that's what you do in meditation, is you learn to seek Him in everything. Ah, and now, if we get a habit of meditating like that, that means when we're in the moment of anxiety, our reframing can be, okay, what does this mean in terms of loving God in this moment? Exactly. So I think anxiety is prayer waiting to happen. Oh, <laughs> oh, so like it, a bubber sticker. It's, <laughs> yes, it's, it's, the, it's this increase of, of energy as we face a challenge just waiting for us to dive sincerely into God. I mean, if we were to anxiously seek God, we would not have to wait long to find him. <laughs> so, Kevin, for you our listeners, transfer it. Yeah. for our listeners, how would you differentiate praying from meditating? Well, there, I think real prayer, which is the actual lifting of our heart to God, um, takes place in meditation more and more progressively as we actually raise our heart and our affections to God. Mm-hmm. Now, you take, like, a great example is you take uh, from, like, the St. Catherine of Siena. Mm-hmm. So she was reading in Scripture, and she came across, create a clean heart in me, O God, you know, Psalm 51. Yes. And 
she was meditating on that and she got such a strong desire that she could repeat it, create a clean heart in me. Now you can imagine what would it look like to say those words in your mind more and more sincerely? Well, it means gradually they, they reverberate within you. They echo within you in silence. And you can get to the point where you are silently intending those words without even having to use the words anymore. And she did that so powerfully that she went right into the presence of our Lord and then saw him like, you know, with, her, with her own eyes. And he actually took her heart out and put his heart in its place. So she had this great mystical experience that began with reading and meditating and going deeper and meaning those words more sincerely. And then she was given this incredible you know, sense of the presence of God and the fiery love for him that led to this, this you know, the transmutation of the heart, you know, that, uh, so that his heart was put in there for a week. He got, he came back, I think a week later and, and <laughs> gave her, her heart back. I read this when I was young. But, yes, but, yes. It's, it's but in that sense, meditation is a, it's almost a calisthenic preparation for prayer, getting, getting the mind disposed properly and ready. You get the desires of the heart disposed. Yeah. Now with and prayer, con- you mentioned uh, words that, uh, Eugene Boylan uses, and that is prayer is acts and affections. What does that mean? Affections? Yeah. So if I think, I think you could say that the path to full contemplation is in your prayer to take, tell our Lord that you love him and progressively mean it more and more. And what you would do is you would, you would find yourself saying it and trying to bring greater sincerity to those words. Sincerity is a purging virtue. Um, it does the work of purging your intentions so that you can mean something more deeply. Like we've always, we probably all had the experience of being on the receiving end of a perfunctory apology or thank you. <laughs> Sorry, right? Dad. We, we can, we can tell, uh, we can tell when those words are coming from purely the left brain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. They're like, they're technically correct, but sincerity transfers things from the left to the right brain by meaning. It's like, even what does it mean to mean a word? Well, for the left brain, it means to say the right word. For the right brain, it means to actually sincerely intend it, mm. to be meaning what you say to our Lord. And then what happens is because everything on the right side of our brain is, is, it can take place in silence, the words reverberate in us for longer and longer. Uh, Kausad talks about this in, in his How Do You Attain to the Prayer of Quiet or the Silence. Well, so that and moves so, from mm-hmm. prayer to contemplation, which I think is you're talking about the prayer of quiet. So that would be the fourth yep. step. So what is, how yep. does contemplation differ from prayer? Or at least so, for that step uh, called prayer. So contemplation is the form of prayer where you can love God with your whole heart, whole mind, whole soul, whole strength. So most people don't see, but contemplation is the ultimate freedom of man. To, to be most free, which means to love the best thing freely, which is God. And so the measure of our freedom is if I could say, okay, to Tom or Chris, say, okay, I want you on the count of five to love God with your whole heart and mind and soul and strength. Okay, go. <laughs> okay. If I were to do that, that, that would be saying that the, the only way of doing that is actually contemplation. Yeah, and so contemplation is when we are loving God with the love that he himself is pouring into our heart. 
So that we're now loving him with his own heart in a way, which is the Holy Spirit. And so our Lord talks about, you know, if any man thirst, which is seeking him, and that's like the what reframing does, let him come to me, which is to actually be aware of his presence, to find his presence, and drink, which is the the deep love, to drink in that love. And then out of his belly will flow rivers of living water, which he said the Holy Spirit. So the seeking Christ, finding Christ, loving Christ. Mm. You know, seeking him is the affective prayer. Finding him takes place in silence. We can talk more about what that means. And then, then loving him is when you're loving him with the love that he's creating in you at that moment. And so contemplation is in silence. Is that correct? Yes. And then yeah. the, the the final step of this Lexio Divina would be action. And and as I'm listening to you here, I'm I'm seeing is there a relationship between the three steps of turning anxiety into flow with some of these steps in Lexio Divina? Yeah, so so contemplation is flow in mental prayer. <laughs> It's the exact same thing. It's so uh, mental prayer and contemplation is also can also be thought of as silent love. Silent love. So Saint John the Cross says the language God hears best is silent love. Mm. And so to love God like that, okay. So I think just this. I think this is helpful to talk a little bit about the framework. Okay. That we have our intellect, which is about what's true and false, and we have our will, which is about what's good and evil. But we also have another faculty called the memory, uh, which and the memory, its its object is being, and that's where awareness takes place. <laughs> and then, and so memory spans being and non-being. So when it comes to our intellect, that's about are we really grasping the truth of the situation, which is seeing it as an opportunity to come to God, and that's what reframing perfects. And reframing is then buttressed by faith that everything is the providence of God. That lets us see then, yes, everything is an opportunity to find God. But memory spans being and non-being. Being is what exists here and now, and and that's the act of attention, versus what's non-being, which is our memories, that's a second act of memory, which is to form these images in our head, which are non-being. Wow. So when memory is completely aware of its prime object, which is what is right now, there's total silence in our mind because memory is fully engaged. But memory then can also attend to non-being, which is the images it formed, which is the noise in our head. Okay. What we might think so, of as distractions. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. So distractions are just memory in its second act. So interesting that what's the virtue then that holds memory in the present moment? What is it, Kevin? <laughs> hope. Ah. So St. John the Cross says, hope perfects memory by annihilating it, hmm. holding it entirely in its awareness of what is and reaching through to discover God holding that in being. So it's, it's what Hebrew says. It's a parting of the veil of the present moment and anchoring us in God. So that we feel the present moment actually held in being by God. And so hope is about an experience and an awareness. It comes from faith. 
And then the response of that is to love God in response with our whole heart. And that's where charity being put into us. We're going to take a break and get back in just a second about how are some practical ways that those of us who struggle with internal silence, how can we get rid of some of that noise and some of that memory? We'll be right back after this break from the studios of Redeemer Radio and Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio and our special amazing guest, Dr. Kevin Majors from Harvard University Medical School. Uh, Kevin, thanks for again for being with us. And just before the break, we were talking about internal silence. And I'm sure I'm the only one listening that has this problem. <laughs> but when I begin to pray, it's nothing more than an internal recitation of my to-do list. How do, mm-hmm. we, how do we even begin to approach that idea of internal holy silence? Yeah. So what we're talking about is that what 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 does what holds your attention fully in the present moment, which is where there's total silence. You know, is the awareness of being of something that is that is existing, and in us there's three things that are actually the same: our breath, our life, and our being. So, and St. Paul refers to these three things twice when he's speaking to the, the, the pagans in the Areopagus. Ah, uh, yes. You know, in, in him you live and move and have your being, who gives us breath and life and being. Yes. So, yes. when you experience your breath, what's the source of it? Your life. And what's the source of your life? Your very act of being coming from the hands of God. So, the source of your being is God. So there's a direct thing to experience. This is also why I think that brain death is not death. That's a different issue. (laughs) But uh, it's the breath, the cardiopulmonary function is the breath, you know, that is the same really as our life, Mm. um, which is the life of a living thing is its very act of being, St. Thomas says. So to be aware of your breath or life or being, right, is to essentially be Aware, it's like putting your hand on something. The other side of that thing is God holding it up in being. Mm. If God didn't continually hold us in being, we would drop to nothingness instantly. Our Lord said, you know, I stand at the door and knock. And if you open to me, then, you know, he'll come in and sup with us and we with him. The knocking is in the very center of our act of being, because that's where he actually touches us. The sacrament of baptism applies to our very being. And then he's recreating us as his own son through baptism. So he's creating us and recreating us in nature, in grace, from the very center of our soul. You have to learn to shut the door and seek him within yourself in the very center of your being. So how do we do this? Mm-hmm. If we're, you know, I'm, it's in the morning, I am on to my sofa, sitting down yep. to pray. All these thoughts go through my head. How do I become aware of my own being and therefore then God's being. Yeah. So I, so I think what you need to do is if you, you have to seek God in silence, you know, to find him in this, in this path. And so you become aware of your breath and just the awareness of the breath fully felt has an incredibly powerful ability to draw your memory entirely into the present, which means shut off distractions. Mm. All distractions then can go away. Now they'll 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 reemerge, um, but then you just refocus again, you know, on on the breath, without any impatience. You just gently refocus, and you will 
sooner, sooner rather than later, start to notice that the popping up of new thoughts is starting to die down. One thing you can do is you can say a simple aspiration to harness that part of your brain that wants to make words. Yes. And and you can say, you know, like the Jesus prayer is perfect. You do, uh, you know, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, as you inhale, then have mercy on me, a sinner, as you exhale. So, you know, I've done that in previous years. Uh, my spiritual director had me do that. Right now, it's just, you know, in and out with the two syllables of Jesus' name. Exactly. And and you can do it. You can do it even just the inhaling is the receiving the Holy Spirit and the exhale is wanting to love God back with him. It, so you can do it without even any words. It is rather ah. um, it, it is rather comical, though, how we desperately want to fill silence with something. We, we, we want, oh, I know the, yeah. the, the mind races to it. So so the in the, the, the one of the best books ever written on how to attain contemplation is called The Cloud of Unknowing. Tell us. Tell mm-hmm. us more about this uh, classic. Yeah. And The Cloud of Unknowing, his method is, first, he says, you enter the cloud of forgetting, which is be aware only of your very act of being, your existing. So which is the living of your whole body or the breathing of your breath. So you just be aware of this until you forget everything else, which means the memory stops popping up with other things. And then you bring to it the strongest desire for God. Mm. And the desire for God reaches through it into what he calls the cloud of unknowing, which is contemplation. And then you get lit from within. St. John of the Cross says that you need to bridle your thoughts very much, focus all your affections on God, and you'll be divinely enkindled. So you bring to this bridling, which is the silence, the desire for God, and then you get the divine enkindling, which is contemplation. So you're not just trying to avoid the distracting thoughts. You're trying to go after or focus on God. So Exactly. The negative thing is like, and this is what sincerity does. Sincerity is about desiring God above everything. And that means that you're not even satisfied with your own thoughts about God, your own images, the words in your head, because those words in your head are not God. Right. John the Cross talks about this all the time. The closest you can get to actually experiencing God is Him holding you right now and being in grace. And that's what you seek by being aware of your very existing. And the only way to get closer to that is first to learn to be aware of the breath, then aware of the life, which is the breath in the body, and then the active being of your whole body and soul. Now, how does this relate to two commonly spoken of Catholic concepts? One from Jean-Pierre de Cossade, the sacrament of the present moment, and then uh, Brother Lawrence and the practice of the presence of God. Or is this what you've been talking about all along here? I think it's, I think it's all the same. So, you know, so the, the, the sacrament, the famous Augustine definition, you know, is it's a visible form of invisible grace. And so to be able to, so having a, is more truly a metaphysical awareness of the present moment, um, people who are are learned have to study metaphysics, Uh, just advisors the best. So, but to study metaphysics is to understand the philosophy behind God is actually holding up all things in existence. He's the cause of every cause. He's the act of every act. So this idea that what it means to actually be in God, but the more aware we are of being in silence, then he is right on the other side of it. And hope drops anchor through that veil and makes contact with eternity on the other side of time. Now, because memory and attention 
don't involve words necessarily. Um, you can maintain that all day long. And it's possible that the time can come uh, when you can't distinguish what's taking place in your best time of contemplation and in your best time of work. So is this so the because, mystery of yeah. St. Paul saying, pray always, pray without ceasing? Yeah, absolutely. And that, and, and that you know, he says, I live, now not I, but Christ lives in me. Mm. And that's the metaphysical path, to be aware of your being, to be aware that you are not the source of it. I am not. So then that means that God is the source of it. Was that Catherine of Siena? You know, you are who is, and I am she who is not. (laughs) Exactly. What people need to see is that when they have anxiety, they need to drop anchor in God. That's what it means to trust Mm. Him. To experience, you know, that all the things that they could worry about are actually in His providence for them to have the best opportunities to love Him. That might mean there's pain, but it will still be he will, you know, the best opportunity he could give them for them to love him. So does this type of silent prayer help prepare people with anxiety in the moment of that high adrenaline rush to act differently? Oh, absolutely. So it flips it completely around into, I think, the fastest way of attaining the fire of love. So when we have a lot of adrenaline, the ability we have to see things clearly and to reframe them, and to remember, like to re- even to remember God, is at its best because of adrenaline. Ah, uh, yes. And our awareness of the present moment is at its best with adrenaline. Yes. So it, Isaiah says, if you return and be quiet, you shall be saved. In silence and in hope shall be your strength. So we will always find this new strength, you know, supporting us when we learn silence and hope to drop anchor in God silently in the present moment. And we can learn to do that all day long. And that has to be the goal, because if we're sincere in desiring God in times of prayer, then we're sincerely wanting it all day long. So I'm starting to see as you're talking about this, how if I'm practicing that prayer every morning and then reframing in moments of anxiety, and so that I'm living with this awareness of my being all through the day, it's my being coming from God, it will be easier to respond in those moments of anxiety and not constantly think of it as anxiety, something attacking me. Exactly. And you can actually learn to open up and love and embrace it in that moment. Hug the cactus, as they say. (laughs) But it almost sounds as though as you get better at these skills, so to speak, there should be fewer moments of anxiety. It seems like it would take more and more to cause you to experience well, yes. What happens, I think, is that very soon, once we transfer our anxious desiring to God alone, then the only thing that can make us anxious is whatever would separate us from it. Mm. The way people approach their work is going to be the same way they approach their prayer. St. John the Cross also says, in the Living Flame of Love, that he asks, in a sense, why do people not know how to pray and it's because they don't want to work, and they don't know how to work. Well, in, in our last, like, four or five minutes here, you have a website called OptimalWork.com. Tell us how this all relates. Yeah, so if people learn to prepare their mind to do their very best hour of work and really go into flow in, in that work, that would be the best preparation, ultimately, for being able to go into flow and prayer. So the way you work becomes the way you pray. Wow. So if you work aiming for God, 
which is what reframing ultimately does. Like, you know, how can I give God the most glory? How can I, you know, save souls? How can I serve the people the most in this next hour of work? And you're aiming for that with that purity of intention. Then you have a totally positive view of that task. You've reframed it. And then you gather your attention completely into the present moment, which takes all those distractions out of your mind. It clears them off the table so that you're totally present right now, anchored ultimately in God. And then you like you throw yourself into the task by embracing the challenge with real generosity, which is the same thing and then as being generous with God. There can come a time where loving God and working at your best, most generously in this hour, are the same thing. It's really the opposite of by working. The opposite of compartmentalization. I'll do my prayer over here, exactly. I'll do my, my work over here. They become the same. Exactly. So if you learn to like basically have a supernatural way of approaching work, <laughs> then the prayer just takes off. So optimal work is about how to attain that. It's not specifically a Catholic website or service, but it does teach people everything they need about how to bring these highest ideals into each hour of work, challenging themselves to really give their best generously in each hour of work. But the thing is, I'm wondering, do these people then become more prone to want to pray if they don't start out that way? Yes, they do. Because ultimately, the only person you can always love is God. And so, and, and the only motive of love that can be constant is to do it for God. And so the very fact that God can be loved, that the smallest of our actions, and how we open and close a door, and how we finish making the edge of our bed, that little sacrifice can be offered lovingly to God. So you can you can lovingly do all these things, you know, and only, there's so many things in our life that only God would, would see it and respond to it and take it. What listeners gift. might benefit from going to the website, OptimalWork.com? If people don't see how their work can have a deeper purpose, mm. and if they don't see that they can attain their best way of working, you know, they can learn to do that at will. That it's not about getting in the right mood. It's about having a dominion over your attention. And if you have dominion over your attention in work, you will have it in prayer too. And if you can love God in your work, you'll love him in your prayer. And so there's a sense of being sincere and humble and generous in our work. It makes us sincere and humble and generous in our prayer. And that's the sure path to contemplation. Kevin, this has been outstanding, full of pearls. I'm going to have to listen to this multiple times to mine them all. You are such, such kind interlocutors here. <laughs> well, thank no, so thank you for being with us. I know we have another one uh, scheduled in the books. Uh, yep. We look forward to having you back. God it's bless you, Kevin. You all. Good day. God bless. Take care. We're back with Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and it is time for the liver-tickling, brain-teasing trivia question. Yes. Well, the skin weighs on average 22 pounds, so I have plenty of organ to work with when I'm operating. But the two largest internal organs are the liver and brain. What's the relationship? Is one bigger than the other? Or are they about the same size? And shockingly, I learned that while the liver is on average larger... It's only about 7.5% larger than the brain as you average between men and women. So the, the correct answer would be that the liver and the brain weigh within 10% of each other. I always pictured the liver as being so much bigger. Mm. 
than the brain. So there, there's a lot of, and I think there's a difference in density too that might be that that could be responsible for some of. That oh as yeah, well. because because I think the brain is very dense, and everybody knows the brain's important. But I'll bet a lot of listeners don't fully appreciate how absolutely critical the liver is to our functioning, our survival. Uh, we can live minutes without our liver, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, it detoxifies. Mm. It breaks down, you know, harmful things into non-harmful things. Uh, it's a great processing center that that we all need, and that, unfortunately, it's one of the few organs that can actually regenerate itself when you lose part of it. Mm. Yeah, and liver liver transplant technology has changed so many thousands of lives for people that you know just a decade ago would have would have simply died. Well, Kevin gave us some more pearls. Each episode seems to get better and better with him. Uh, practical tips on how your prayer life can help turn your anxiety into loving actions. I mean, who'd have thought? Yeah, really remarkable. That idea that it, I almost got one little glimpse there that perhaps I could quiet down in prayer and approach something that resembles holy silence. He makes it sound so doable and so logical and as though we're already pre-wired to do it, we just need to get those circuits working. Yes, we do. Well, thanks for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, and we come to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite him or her to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Be sure to rate and review our show. This helps new listeners find us. And please be sure to send us your questions and tell us what you've heard. Tell us what you like. Yeah, you can tell us what you don't like and what you'd like to hear. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing the mysteries of neurosurgery and the neurosurgeon with Dr. Paul Camerato. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.